You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everybody. This is Annie for Solidarity Breakfast. I had a wrestle with Dinasat, but I won. Fantastic. We're here on this uh, glorious morning. It's always nice to have to open your eyes and see the world about... Uh, I presume that if you didn't open your eyes, you wouldn't actually have any opinion at all. But anyway, it's a nice day outside. Uh, On Solidarity Breakfast, uh, we're going to uh, uh, talk to Craig Horn, who has published a book called The Line of Blood, The Truth of Alfred Howitt. We're going to uh, get a little snippet from the... Women's Rights at Work conference, which they had on Friday in relation to the yes vote. It opened the conference with uh, 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 unions for yes, a, vo- a voice from to parliament. And I thought that after hearing about the line of blood, uh, uh, that uh, how uh, Victoria was wrested from the uh, Indigenous community in uh, the 1850s and earlier, Uh, we might hear the actual voice to Parliament as read by uh, Rachel Boss, who is a Kuna woman and ACTU First Nations uh, educator and officer. Uh, We um, get a little snippet of a uh, lowdown on uh, what happened to uh, the uh, Save Preston Market um, event that was held on Saturday the 12th of August. Uh, Connor Flynn was at the uh, Brotherhood of St. Lawrence uh, rally, which was on Thursday. It's uh, last uh, Thursday that's just passed. So if you were listening to Stick Together, don't trundle down to uh, the uh, Brunswick offices of uh, BLS, as they fondly call it. It's not a... uh, clothing line. It's actually a uh, social services organisation, Brotherhood of St. Lawrence, (laughs) BSL. Um, uh, They had their rally on uh, Thursday. If you want a full report of that, you can uh, listen to the next edition of Stick Together because it was a rousing event. Lots of uh, bips of support, Uh, a classic uh, union a membership workers rally out on busy Brunswick Street. Uh, but anyway, Connor was there. He's a CPSU union organiser and Save Preston Market spokesperson. And he was able to tell me what actually happened and their perspective on that incredibly successful event. Um, hands around uh, 
Preston Market. Uh, we hear from David Gonzalez. He's the bra- branch president of the NTU, the National Tertiary Education Union uh, at Melbourne Uni-, Uni. There, you may have already heard whispers. Going, some sections of Melbourne University, starting on Monday, are going to go out for seven days. This is groundbreaking. Of course, the uh, the events that have been happening on the Australian university campuses in relation to the uh, outrageous behaviour of management in its employment practices and its work, um, uh, its uh, business model, which is to basically have uh, academics and other workers uh, on casual uh, uh, contracts. Uh, predominantly, and to also go through constant restructurings, which is really just code for how can we get rid of people. But anyway, by the by, so anyway, it's a big deal, and we're talking to David about what's going to go on there. This is the week that was, and we're going to follow that with a chat a lot uh, with our regular, but we haven't heard from him for a while, uh, Don Sutherland. It's the profit season, and he's going to give us some dope on that. Before we get on to the program, though, I've got a a collection of rather interesting things that have uh, been happening in South America. You may or may not know, but uh, on um, uh, August the 21st in Guatemala, that uh, an anti-corruption candidate, Bernardo Arrevalo, from the progressive... Movimento Similar Party won the Guatemalans' presidential election, beating former First Lady Sandra Torres. Now, I listened to a webinar leading up to this election, and of course, you know the uh, incredibly bloody history of Guatemala, and also the loss of uh, lands and uh, from and uh, the impoverishment of uh, the people there. Uh, This is a huge event because apparently uh, what happened in the run-ups to this election, uh, people were calling for a leftist party to actually put forward a candidate and uh, the it's an amalgamation of all the leftist groups, really. Uh, and uh, they were caught on the hop because they're all rather small and uh, not uh, really a, a political party. They were really pressure groups. And they've uh, now come up to the, um, the uh, plate and uh, uh, against all odds have won the presidential election. This is a turning moment for Guatemala. This is a really big deal. And now the next thing that was really big deal was that uh, on Sunday, uh, last Sunday, the Ecuadorians voted to make their country a global trailblazer for climate justice, according to the campaigners at Global Justice Now. They, over uh, 60%, voted uh, not to allow oil drilling in in the Yasumi National Park. Now, this is huge. Um, and so uh, uh, the Equ- in 2007, the Ecuadorian government put a call out to the international community asking rich countries to compensate Ecuador for the climate-positive action of leaving oil in the ground in Yasuni. 
um, if governments in the global north had contributed to this fund, Yasuni would have already been protected. The world could have taken a major step towards a just transition away from fossil fuels 15 years ago. Investments in the fund would have been investments in all of our futures, says the campaign. Anyway, it's really, that's a really big deal too. Um, but uh, on a less um, happy note... Uh, LASNET, the uh, Latin American Solidarity Network in Melbourne, have uh, strongly condemned the violence and repression against uh, Mapuche political prisoners in Chile. Uh, LASNET members want to express their discomfort with the actions of the Chilean government and the prison guards for the health of our Mapuche political prisoners, the repression, the suffering of their relatives, the territories under the Gabriel Boric government, contrary to its promises of more equity and justice. And as a result, they want people to go and join them outside the Chilean consulate in St Kilda Road, that's 13 slash 390 St Kilda Road, um, on Tuesday at 12 p.m. That's this Tuesday at 12 p.m. to call for uh, the um, better treatment of Mapuche political prisoners currently in a hunger strike. Uh, it's uh, this hunger strike's uh, into its 104th day. Uh, it, you know, we we don't know uh, how terrible these things are. Uh, in Australia, and it's uh, down to people like Lasnet to keep us aware. So 12pm at 390 St Kilda Road on Tuesday. You're on 3CR with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast. The Chilean community, in partnership with the AMWU's International Solidarity Initiative, is holding a commemorative event for the 50th anniversary of Chile's coup, September 11, the day that changed us forever. Join generations of Chilean refugees, exiles and recent arrivals, together with Australian unionists and activists in the solidarity movement, for a night of testimonies, speakers, poetry and music. On Monday, September 11, from 6pm at Solidarity Hall at the Victorian Trades Hall, this event will be held in English and all are welcome. To register, search for Chile 50 Years on eventbrite.com.au. Chile, 50 Years of Solidarity and Struggle. A 3CR supporter. You with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast. Uh, as I promised, we're going to have listened to a chat I had with author Craig Horn. He's written this book called The Line of Blood, The Truth of Alfred Howitt. And uh, often people f- completely forget the history, but uh, white Australian history is actually incredibly short. Uh, uh, but it's full of blood and terror. And uh, his uh, investiga- Craig's investigation of the life of Alfred Howitt who was a luminary in the anthropological area and uh, internationally famed fellow as well as explorer, uh, is a perfect way into looking at 
the uh, destruction of uh, the Indigenous uh, connection to land in Victoria. And uh, I tell you that uh, you really should go out and buy this book. It's published by Melbourne Books. And uh, it's an absolute fascinating read because it gives you a really, it just lays it out on the table for you to have a look at. Um, And uh, gruelling read, but uh, absolutely essential. I found uh, the uh, line of blood, The Truth of Alfred Howitt, an absolutely fascinating read. You must have spent an awful long time researching this. Can you tell us a little bit about how this all began for you? Because it's tantalising. You're related to him. Yes, indeed. Well, well, I'm kind of vaguely... He was a... um, His uncle, Uncle Godfrey, who... I was a great, great, great uh, grandfather of, of mine, so he was kind. He's kind of a cousin, uh, you know, a cousin. Yeah, I, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, uh, for people who don't, I mean, they have to. Re- the reason for why this book is so tantalising is because it gives you a real picture of Melbourne from another time. So the Godfrey you're talking about had a house and a farm on the corner of Spring Street and it went down to Flinders Lane. Indeed, and it, and it went um, probably west to beyond exhibition uh, to Russell almost, yes. So Amazing. Sort of interesting. He actually came out here in 1840. His son was unhealthy, so he brought him out uh, to fresh air out in the colonies. And, yeah, so he actually I was a doctor, so he came out as a practising doctor, physician. And Alfred came out in 1852, so it was when we were part of New South Wales, we were just growing a book because of gold, basically. Yeah, he came because of gold. Um, And I suppose we should go back to the original question that I just jumbled over, which is I just couldn't get over the fact that there used to be a cottage with a farm in that location. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) And I just thought I'd better tell people because it's just tantalising to read a book that actually gives a a clear understanding of what it was actually like in those earliest days in Melbourne. Yeah, well, in fact, opposite where the Fitzroy uh, Gardens are was open country and uh, it was a kind of a dangerous place after dark because there were, you know, robbers and, you know, all sorts of things happening in there. So there you go. Well, there you go. But see, that's the thing. You, you made this journey into the past, didn't you? And there was a reason I for did. why you did that. Well, Alfred was a hero in our family. Um, he discovered, you know, Burke and Wills, or he led the actual recovery or the, the search, if you like, and he found them. And so he was in every history book, everything we ever read on the great, you know, fiasco that was Burke and Wills. As I got older, as I read his work, and as I worked in Aboriginal affairs and and I, and I came across him, I, he became an anthropologist, as sort of an amateur, and, and I read what he was writing, and it was extraordinary. I mean, he was a collector, and he collected rep- 
repositories of imp- uh, cultural info. But what he wrote, well, it chilled me a bit. You yeah, know, yeah. Because he was writing it from the perspective of a social Darwinian, so he was he was viewing Aboriginal Australians as primitive savages, and his sort of purpose ultimately was to prove so were this primeval people locked over here in I like flies and aspic. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, what is it? Uh, uh, caught in amber. Yes, that's it. Yeah, caught, caught in, in amber. amber. Yeah, like, right. like a, um, uh, a fossil. Yes, that's right. And it worried me. So I kept on reading and I kept on searching who was this man, you know, Alfred Howard. And I think at the end I found out. Yeah, yeah, it's really pretty interesting stuff. And um, I, what you've done... Uh, I mean, because there's an incredible level of detail, uh, which I found really fascinating. So you you worked really hard on this. Lots of fantastic, yeah, lots of fantastic. It's, it's scholarly work, in fact. But oh, you, well, yeah, <laughs> COVID was a was a was a great thing, you know. <laughs> it gave me the um, it, it gave me kind of uh, time and space. That's what happened. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, but where, thank goodness, you're a good writer as well. So, oh, so it's a real, really interesting read. And okay. uh, yeah, yeah, no, it is a really interesting read. And I'm interested in the subject. So, uh, okay. talking to the uh, for people to realise what's going on in this book is not only are we finding out about this autodidact called Alfred Howitt, who had. Uh, an inf- a large influence on uh, a whole lot of things, which we will talk about in a minute. But sure. running alongside that, you give a modern perspective uh, where he treads. You actually tell us about the uh, communities and First Nations people who are completely disrupted at the same time as he walks through this country. Well, there was a, a couple of waves of colonisation. There was the first wave that was the Dwatters who, who came in you know, over the hills from uh, New South Wales and who came into virgin country, you know, Toex. And these open plains that had been created over millennium by Aboriginal people and were the sexual homes of of whole communities and what happened was of course uh, there was resistance and the resistance was met with absolute brutal force you know so we actually had that happening and then we had the gold and what happened was a second wave came in of miners and prospectors who went out and everything that was left was turned over. And what we actually had was a whole economy that had been here for 60,000 years was suddenly wrecked, smashed, you know, and how it worked with and was sponsored through 
this, the the um, I don't know uh, the the uh, murderers, yeah, murderers, uh, you know, yeah, of the of those Aboriginal people. He was actually investigating. Yeah, you know? yeah, like um, Macmillan and Macmillan. Uh, oh my God, <laughs> the blood, the blood. <laughs> he was a he was just a horrible horrible. He, Individual. I mean, he he led the actual Highland Brigade up around Omeo and yeah. South and Gippsland. That's right. Bruising and all that. Yeah. Yes, that's right. And he and the actual Highland Brigade were a cleansing a militia that headed in in out of the bush and slaughtered hundreds, if not thousands, of local Kurnai. Kurnai. Yeah. And the the infamous um, event, I was at Warrigal Creek, where yeah, yeah. hundreds were slaughtered in revenge for a, a, an attack on a local shopkeeper. And uh, but Macmillan <laughs> was actually Howard's great sponsor. Of Macmillan's were obviously sitting in the upper house of Victoria in the in the council. So he was a very powerful bloke, you know. And so he sponsored Alfred on his incursions in over the Highlands. So we actually have Howard Plain, Mount Howard, in search of gold. And Howard would have known what the hell was was actually happening over there, but chose silence, ultimately. Which is the deafening silence that uh, we all grew up with. Uh, and has now been um, uh, unceremoniously become quite clear. And this is where your book is so fantastic because you actually make it clear. And Alfred is a perfect protagonist because here is this person who comes from... I just couldn't get over the way it all fell into place because Alfred's father, William Howitt, had written a piece that was really influential on Marx in regards to the way the West just gouged avariciously uh, uh, the wealth from uh, colonised places. Mm. This is fascinating, absolutely fascinating stuff. It was called Colonisation and Christianity and it was was written in 1838 and it was incredibly influential and, it, and it's quoted even now he was visceral <laughs> arguing that christianity and obviously a colonizing nations you know were slaughterers plunderers you know yeah yeah <laughs> so, and, and it was I mean, written by a person who was in living memory that person's living memory the clearances and the destruction uh, that happened in Scotland and in England. Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Interestingly and quite extraordinarily, he, he came out here and flipped. Yeah. <laughs> and became an, a, a total apologist for the actual slaughterers and murderers of Australia, calling them, you know, heroic, you know. But, no, he was a propagandist. Yeah, that's one of the things. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, that's what your book is really fascinating because it's got all these strands in it because you've got a big brain. You've got all these fantastic strands running through it that 
really make that whole period uh, clear because of the uh, different, uh, even references to French artist Delacroix, and you realise suddenly these people were contemporaries. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I mean, it was an interesting era, and that contradiction with what you write as an armchair theorist, and then when you come out and you actually see what you've criticised and viscerated, and you come out here and you see it in the flesh, and you just flip. You know, like you just completely 180 degree flip. It's just extraordinary. I just, I could, you know. Yeah, yeah, it was extraordinary. Bruce P- Pascoe actually does the uh, forward, which is a right. fascinating um, thing to because uh, he reflects on how it and. and uh, he says, in reading the book, parts of how its character make my skin crawl. <laughs> but the uncovering of his life was re- revelatory, and he's completely correct. He was a mysterious character in many ways, and more exploration of the mystery was the, has been good for our understanding of history because he wrote this piece of work because he was an autodidact and also a literalist. I'd take to say, because, yeah, he is. He's a literalist. He actually collected data. And then, even though he superimposed his own rather horrible eugenics sort of approach to life onto it and white supremacy on it, he actually has left a gift for the peoples who have been horribly destroyed. It's the great irony, isn't it? I mean... I worked in Aboriginal Affairs and I um, actually commissioned Ray Thomas, who's a a local Kurnai artist, to paint three three interesting panels of his choosing that could be on the walls of our offices, you know. And I went up to his studio in Reservoir to have a look, you know, sort of how it was going. And here on the table or whatever in front of him was uh, how its southeast tribes open at the section on uh, the Boran, who's the, I don't know, how would you do Anyway, a key area of culture. And he was painting the pelican that is Boran, the symbol of males in, in uh, Burnai. Yeah, that, it's, a, it's and, a creation story, right? Yes. Yes, absolutely. Yes, yes, yes. And it was extraordinary. I just, it just shook me, and I just said, "Oh well, he's mine," you know, blah blah blah. And he went, "Oh, right, yeah, okay." And we and we chatted about that contribution, you know, that he had. And I so all through my adult life, I've just had this con- these two elements in my head, you know, the the fact that Melbourne, what we know as Narn, was from uh, Howard's collection of cultural data, you know, because he, uh, he actually asked William Barak, what's the name, what was this area called, and Nam, you know, so yeah. interesting, you know, so, yeah, yeah, but, yeah. but under it all, under it all, is this purpose, why did he collect it, and why was to prove, as I say, Aboriginal Australians were savages and primitives, and he was able then to be the most revered, you know, early anthropologist in the country and uh, 
James Fraser from England who wrote The Golden Tower. He almost worshipped him. You know, Frederick Eng- Engels quotes him and, you know, like the <laughs> uh, Berkheim and Spencer here. I mean, it's extraordinary, his kind of influence, which was, I think, influenced how we as Australians actually think on who Aboriginal people are. And we, I think, for, for over 200 years have relocated them to what? I don't know, flora and fauna. You know what I mean? Yeah, I do. I do. And and, and that's why this is such an interesting book because, I mean, he's a real bastard, really. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, he's an ambitious man, really. Yeah. 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 I agree. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I agree. but, But the fact that they have such... Uh, these mythologies that have been created uh, and uh, used to perpetuate the uh, hideous uh, creation myth of white Australia is, um, uh, frankly, because it's such a short history, Australian white, white Australian history is so short, it's uh, so easy to see the uh, uh, affrontery of it. Oh, yes, absolutely. Really easy, and it, and through his other work as a royal commissioner in to the Aboriginal problem in italics of Victoria, I mean, he recommended as part of it all that all the disparate nations of uh, Victoria, all of the people, want to be gathered in protectorates because you know, yeah, we sort of had to protect them. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. Do you think the ABC's left wing? Don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am, streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everybody. This is Annie for Solidarity Breakfast. I had a wrestle with Ninasat, but I won. Fantastic. We're here on this uh, glorious morning. It's always nice to have to open your eyes and see the world about. uh, I presume that if you didn't open your eyes, you wouldn't actually have any opinion at all. But anyway, it's a nice day outside. Uh, On Solidarity Breakfast, uh, we're going to... uh, uh, talk to Craig Horn, who has published a book called The Line of Blood, The Truth of Alfred Howitt. We're going to uh, get a little snippet from the uh, uh, Women's Rights at Work conference, which they had on Friday in relation to the yes vote. It opened the conference with uh, uh, 
uh, unions for yes, a, vo- a voice from to Parliament, and I thought that after hearing about the line of blood, uh, uh, that uh, how uh, Victoria was wrested from the uh, Indigenous community in uh, the 1850s and earlier, uh, we might hear the actual voice to Parliament as read by uh, Rachel Boss, who is a Kuna woman and ACTU First Nations uh, educator and officer. Uh, we um, get a little snippet of a uh, lowdown on uh, what happened to uh, the uh, Save Preston Market um, event that was held on Saturday the 12th of August. Uh, Connor Flynn was at the uh, Brotherhood of St Lawrence uh, rally, which was on Thursday. It's uh, last uh, Thursday that's just passed. So if you're listening to Stick Together, don't trundle down to uh, the uh, Brunswick offices of uh, BLS, as they fondly call it. It's not a... uh, clothing line. It's actually a uh, social services organisation, Brotherhood of St Lawrence, (laughs) BSL. Um, uh, They had their rally on uh, Thursday. If you want a full report of that, you can uh, listen to the next edition of Stick Together because it was a rousing event. Lots of uh, bips of support, Uh, a classic uh, union uh, membership workers rally out on busy Brunswick Street. Uh, but anyway, Connor was there. He's a CPSU union organiser and Save Preston Market spokesperson. And he was able to tell me what actually happened and their perspective on that incredibly successful event. Um, hands around uh, Preston Market. Uh, we hear from David Gonzalez. He's the bra- branch president of the NTU, the National Tertiary Education Union, uh, at Melbourne Uni-, Uni. There, you may have already heard whispers. Going, some sections of Melbourne University, starting on Monday, are going to go out for seven days. This is groundbreaking. Of course, the uh, the events that have been happening on the Australian university campuses in relation to the uh, outrageous behaviour of management in its employment practices and its work, um, uh, its uh, business model, which is to basically have uh, academics and other workers uh, on casual uh, uh, contracts predominantly, and to also go through constant restructurings, which is really just code for how can we get rid of people. But anyway, by the by, so anyway, it's a big deal, and we're talking to David about what's going to go on there. This is the week that was, and we're going to follow that with a chat a lot uh, with our regular, but we haven't heard from him for a while, uh, Don Sutherland. It's the profit season, and he's going to give us some dope on that. Before we get on to the program, though, I've got a a collection of rather interesting things that have uh, been happening in South America. You may or may not know, but uh, on um, uh, August the 21st in Guatemala, that uh, an anti-corruption candidate, Bernardo Arrevalo, from the progressive... Movimento Simila Party won the Guatemalan's presidential election 
beating former First Lady Sandra Torres. Now, I listened to a webinar leading up to this election and, of course, you know the uh, incredibly bloody history of Guatemala and also the loss of uh, lands and and, uh, the impoverishment of uh, the people there. Uh, This is a huge event because apparently uh, what happened in the run-ups to this election Uh, people were calling for a leftist party to actually put forward a candidate and uh, the it's an amalgamation of all the leftist groups, really. Uh, and uh, they were caught on the hop because they're all rather small and uh, not uh, really a, a political party. They were really pressure groups and they've uh, now come up to the, um, the uh, plate and... Uh, uh, against all odds, have won the presidential election. This is a turning moment for Guatemala. This is a really big deal. And now the next thing that was really big deal was that uh, on Sunday, uh, last Sunday, the Ecuadorians voted to make their country a global trailblazer for climate justice, according to the campaigners at Global Justice Now. They... Over uh, 60% voted uh, not to allow uh, oil dr- uh, drilling in in the Yasumi National Park. Now, this is huge. Um, and so uh, uh, the Equ- in 2007, the Ecuadorian government put a call out to the international community asking rich countries to compensate Ecuador for the climate-positive action of leaving oil in the ground in Yasuni. Um, if governments in the global north had contributed to this fund, Yasuni would have already been protected. The world could have taken a major step towards a just transition away from fossil fuels 15 years ago. Investments in the fund would have been investments in all of our futures, says the campaign. Anyway, it's really, that's a really big deal too. Um, but uh, on a less um, happy note... Uh, LASNET, the uh, Latin American Solidarity Network in Melbourne, have uh, strongly condemned the violence and repression against uh, Mapuche political prisoners in Chile. Uh, LASNET members want to express their discomfort with the actions of the Chilean government and the prison guards for the health of our Mapuche political prisoners, the repression, the suffering of their relatives, the territories under the Gabriel Boric government, contrary to its promises of more equity and justice. And as a result, they want people to go and join them outside the Chilean consulate in St Kilda Road, that's 13 slash 390 St Kilda Road, um, on Tuesday at 12pm, that's this Tuesday at 12pm, to call for uh, the um, better treatment of Mapuche political prisoners currently in a hunger strike. Uh, it's, uh, this hunger strike's uh, into its 104th day. Uh, it, you know, we, we don't know uh, how terrible these things are. Uh, in Australia, and it's uh, down to people like Lasnet to keep us aware. So 12pm at 390 St Kilda Road on Tuesday. 
You're on 3CR with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast. The Chilean community, in partnership with the AMWU's International Solidarity Initiative, is holding a commemorative event for the 50th anniversary of Chile's coup, September 11, the day that changed us forever. Join generations of Chilean refugees, exiles and recent arrivals together with Australian unionists and activists in the Solidarity Movement for a night of testimonies, speakers, poetry and music on Monday, September 11 from 6pm at Solidarity Hall at the Victorian Trades Hall. This event will be held in English and all are welcome. To register, search for Chile 50 Years on eventbrite.com.au. Chile, 50 years of solidarity and struggle. A 3CR supporter. You with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast. Uh, as I promised, we're going to have listened to a chat I had with author Craig Horn. He's written this book called The Line of Blood, The Truth of Alfred Howitt. And uh, often people f- completely forget the history, but uh, white Australian history is actually incredibly short, uh, uh, but it's full of blood and terror. And uh, his uh, investiga- Craig's investigation of the life of Alfred Howard, who was a luminary in the anthropological area and uh, internationally famed fellow as well as explorer, uh, is a perfect way into looking at the uh, destruction of uh, the Indigenous uh, connection to land in Victoria. And uh, I tell you that uh, you really should go out and buy this book. It's published by Melbourne Books and uh, it's an absolute fascinating read because it gives you a really, it just lays it out on the table for you to have a look at. Um, And uh, gruelling read, but uh, absolutely essential. I found uh, the uh, line of blood, the truth of Alfred Howitt, uh, absolutely fascinating read. You must have spent an awful long time researching this. Can you tell us a little bit about how this all began for you? Because it's tantalising. You're related to him. Yes, indeed. Well, well, I'm kind of vaguely... He was a... um, His uncle, Uncle Godfrey, who... I was a great, great, great uh, grandfather of uh, mine, so he was kind. He's kind of a cousin, uh, you know, a cousin. Yeah, I, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, uh, for people who don't, I mean, they have to. Re- the reason for why this book is so tantalising is because it gives you a real picture of Melbourne from another time. So the Godfrey you're talking about had a house and a farm on the corner of Spring Street, and it went down to Flinders Lane. Indeed, and it and it went um, probably west to beyond exhibition at a rustle almost, yes. So Amazing. Sort of interesting. He actually came out here in 1840. His son was unhealthy, so he brought him out to fresh air out in the colonies. And, yeah, so he actually I was a doctor, so he came out as a practising doctor, physician. And Alfred came out in 1852, so it was when we were part of New South Wales, we were just growing a book, of course, of gold, basically. 
Yeah, he came because of gold. Um, yeah. And I suppose we should go back to the original question that I just sure. jumbled over, oh. which is I just couldn't get over the fact that there used to be a cottage with a farm in that location. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and I just thought I'd better tell people because it's just tantalising to read a book that actually gives a a clear understanding of what it was actually like in those earliest days in Melbourne. Yeah, well, well, in fact, opposite where the Fitzroy uh, Gardens are was open country and uh, it was a kind of a dangerous place after dark because there were, you know, robbers and, you know, all sorts of things happening in there. So there you go. Well, there you go. But see, that's the thing. You, you made this journey into the past, didn't you? And there was a reason I for did. why you did that. Well, Alfred was a hero in our family. Um, he discovered, you know, Burke and Wills, or he led the actual recovery or the, the search, if you like, and he found them. And so he was in every history book, everything we ever read on the great, you know, fiasco that was Burke and Wills. As I got older, as I read his work, and as I worked in Aboriginal affairs and and I, and I came across him, <laughs> he became an anthropologist, as sort of an amateur, and, and I read what he was writing, and it was extraordinary. I mean, he was a collector, and he collected repositories of in, uh, cultural info, but what he wrote, well, it chilled me a bit. You yeah, know. yeah. Because he was writing it from the perspective of a social Darwinian, so he was he was viewing Aboriginal Australians as primitive savages, and his sort of purpose ultimately was to prove so were this primeval people locked over here in I like flies and aspic. Yeah, as yeah. You called it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. what um, is it? Uh, uh, caught in Amber. Yes, that's it. Yeah, Caught, caught in, in Amber. Amber. Yeah, like, like right. a, um, uh, a fossil. Yes, that's right. And it worried me. So I kept on reading and I kept on searching who was this man, you know, Alfred Howard. And I think at the end I found out. Yeah, yeah, it's really pretty interesting stuff. And um, I, what you've done, uh, I mean, because there's an incredible level of detail, uh, which I found really fascinating. So you you worked really hard on this. Lots of fantastic, yeah, lots of fantastic. It's, it's scholarly work, in fact. But oh, you, well, yeah, <laughs> COVID was a was a was a great thing, you know. <laughs> it gave me the. Um, it, it gave me a kind of uh, time and space. That's what happened, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, but where, thank goodness, you're a good writer as well. So, oh, so it's a real, really interesting read. And oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, no, it is a really interesting read. And I'm interested in the subject. So, uh, oh, talking to the uh, for people to realise what's going on in this book is not only are we finding out about this autodidact called Alfred Howitt, who had 
uh, an inf- a large influence on uh, a whole lot of things, which we will talk about in a minute. But sure. running alongside that, you give a modern perspective uh, where he treads, you actually tell us about the uh, communities and First Nations people who are completely disrupted at the same time as he walks through this country. Well, there was a, a couple of ways of colonisation. There was the first wave that was the quarters who, who came in you know, over the hills from uh, New South Wales and who came into virgin country, you know, coex. And these open plains that had been created over millennium by Aboriginal people and were the sexual homes of, of whole communities. And what happened was, of course, uh, there was resistance. And the resistance was met with absolute brutal force, you know. So we actually had that happening. And then we had the gold. And what happened was a second wave came in of miners and prospectors who went out and everything that was left was turned over. And what we actually had was a whole economy that had been here for 60,000 years was suddenly wrecked, smashed, you know, and how it worked with and was sponsored through the, the, the um, I don't know, other, the um, murderers. Yeah, murderers. Uh, you know, yeah, of, the, of those Aboriginal people, he was actually investigating. Yeah, you know? yeah, like um, Macmillan. And, Macmillan. Uh, oh, my God, the blood, the blood. <laughs> he, was a, he was just a horrible, horrible individual. I mean, he, he led the actual Highland Brigade up around Omeo and yeah. south and Gippsland, that's right. And Bruzen and all that. Yeah. Yes, that's right. And, he, and the actual Highland Brigade were a cleansing militia headed in, in out of the bush and slaughtered hundreds, if not thousands, of local Kurnai. Kurnai. Yeah. And the, the infamous um, event, I was at Warrigal Creek, where yeah. Yeah. hundreds were slaughtered in revenge for a, a, an attack on a local shopkeeper. And uh, but McMillan <laughs> was actually Howard's great... Sponsor of Macmillan's were obviously sitting in the upper house of Victoria in the in the council. So he was a very powerful bloke, you know. And so he sponsored Alfred on his excursions in over the Highlands. So we actually have Howard Plain, Mount Howard, in search of gold. And Howard would have known what the hell was was actually happening over but chose silence, ultimately. Which is the deafening silence that uh, we all grew up with uh, yeah. and has now been um, uh, 
unceremoniously become quite clear. And this is where your book is so fantastic because you actually make it clear. And Alfred is a perfect protagonist because here is this person who comes from, I just couldn't get over the way it all fell into place because Alfred's father, William Howitt, had written a piece that was really influential on Marx in regards to the way the West just gouged avariciously uh, uh, the wealth from uh, colonised places. Mm. This is fascinating, absolutely fascinating stuff. It was called Colonisation and Christianity, and it was it was written in 1838, and it was incredibly influential, and, it, and it's quoted even now. He was visceral, <laughs> arguing that, Christianity and obviously colonising nations, you know, were slaughterers, plunderers, you know. Yeah, yeah. And it was written by a person who was in living memory, that person's living memory, the clearances and the destruction uh, that happened in Scotland and in England. Yes, absolutely. Interestingly and quite extraordinary, he, he came out here and flipped yeah. <laughs> and became an, a, a total apologist for the actual slaughterers and murderers of Australia, it was calling them, you know, heroic, you know. But, no, he was a propagandist. Yeah, that's one of the things. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, that's what your book is really fascinating because it's got all these strands in it because you've got a big brain. You've got all these fantastic (laughs) strands running through it that uh, really make that whole period uh, clear because of the uh, different, uh, even references to French artist Delacroix. And you realise suddenly these people were contemporaries. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I mean... It was an interesting era, and that contradiction with what you write as an armchair theorist, and then when you come out and you actually see what you criticised and viscerated, and you come out here and you see it in the flesh, and you just flip. You know, like you just completely 180 degree flip. It's just extraordinary. I just, I could, you know. Yeah, yeah, it was extraordinary. Bruce P- Pascoe actually does the uh, forward, which is a right. fascinating um, thing to because uh, he reflects on Howitt and, and uh, he says in reading the book, parts of Howitt's character make my skin crawl. <laughs> but the uncovering of his life was re- revelatory and he's completely correct. He was a mysterious character in many ways and more exploration of the mystery was the has been good for our understanding of history because he wrote this piece of work because he was an autodidact and also a literalist, I'd take to say, because, yeah, he is, he's a literalist. He actually collected data and then even though he superimposed his own rather horrible eugenics sort of approach to life onto it and white supremacy on it, he actually has left a gift for the peoples who have been horribly destroyed. It's the great irony, isn't it? I mean, I worked in Aboriginal affairs and I um, actually commissioned Ray Thomas, to, who's a, a local 
It's a creation story, right? Yes, yes, absolutely. Yes, yes, yes. And it was extraordinary. I just, it just shook me and I just said, oh, well, he's mine, you know, blah, blah, blah. And he went, oh, right, yeah. And we, and we chatted about that contribution, you know, that he had. And I, so all through my adult life, I've just had this con- these two elements in the head, you know, the, the fact that Melbourne, what we know as Narn, was from uh, Howard's collection of cultural data, you know, because he uh, he actually asked William Barak, what's the name, what was this area called, and Nam, you know, so yeah. interesting, you know. So, yeah, yeah, but, yeah. but under it all, under it all, is this purpose. Why did he collect it, and why was to prove, as I say, Aboriginal Australians were savages and primitives and he was able then to be the most revered you know early anthropologist in the country and uh, James Fraser from England who wrote the golden power he almost worshipped him you know Frederick Engels quotes him and you know like (laughs) uh, Berkheim and Spencer here. I mean, it's extraordinary his kind of influence, which was, I think, influenced how we as Australians actually think on who Aboriginal people are. And we, I think, for for over 200 years, have relocated them to what? I don't know, flora and fauna. You know what I mean? Yeah, I do. I do. And and that's why this is such an interesting book because, I mean, he's a real bastard, really. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, he's an ambitious man, really. Yeah. 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 I agree. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I agree. but, But the fact that they have such... Uh, these mythologies that have been created and uh, used to perpetuate the uh, hideous uh, creation myth of white Australia is, um, uh, frankly, because it's such a short history, Australian white, white Australian history is so short, it's uh, so easy to see the uh, uh, affrontery of it. Oh, yes, absolutely. Really easy, and it, and through his other work as a royal commissioner in uh, to the Aboriginal problem in italics of Victoria, I mean, he recommended as part of it all that all the disparate nations of uh, Victoria, all of the people, ought to be gathered in protectorates because you know yeah. we sort of had to protect them all through uh, 
for Emlingham? Uh, all of them. <laughs> and we, we'll turn them all into white men and, you know, isn't it excellent? Aren't we good Christians, you know? <laughs> Cultural genocide was, you know? Yeah, yeah, it's really, really, it's really quite, it's, in fact, there were parts of the book that I had to stop reading for a while because I needed to, it's not like I don't, it's not a spoiler, it's not like you don't know what happened. <laughs> no, but it was how it actually happened. Yeah, how, how it happened, know. yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah, so, right. so um, this, your book, um, The Line of Blood, uh, The Truth of Alfred Howard, how? A very uh, can't can't um, uh, tell people enough about how worthwhile it is to read it. It's just been launched, isn't it? Yes, it was launched on Tuesday. Actually, it was it was, it was excellent. They, um, actually, Hillary McVeigh launched it. Bruce drove up from East. Oh, did he? Good on him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Bruce and I are basically childhood friends. Our fathers. Um, were in the war and uh, and were friends, well, besties, actually. <laughs> and, and so I kind of grew up with uh, Bruce and, and he was the first person I actually asked, what do you reckon about Howard? And he encouraged me and read early drafts and the whole bit, so yeah. Oh, that's great. All right, and it's being published by Melbourne Books. It's a small publisher, uh, but he's very, he's great. Okay, and so people can get it at all good bookshops. Yeah, it's piled up in readings, it's everywhere. Yes, it is. (laughs) Do themselves a favour and go and buy it. Oh, aren't you nice? Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) And I really appreciate that you read it. that's, That's fantastic. Yeah, and that was my chat with Craig Horn, The Line of Blood, The Truth of Alfred Howard. As he said, you can buy it at bookshops now. Uh, I hope, uh, I probably should have done a bit of a warning at the beginning of that because uh, the subject matter is really quite uh, gruesome. G'day, my name is Margie Thorpe. You are listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 on your dial. What I'm going to do today, and I always seize this opportunity whenever I'm in front of a group of people, but I'm going to read the statement to the heart of it, from the heart from you because this document was designed to be heard. It is a beautiful statement. The words come alive when they're spoken, and I want to be able to share that with you today. And I know most of you have probably heard it before, but just bear with me. We, gathered at the 2017 National Constitutional Convention coming from all points of the southern sky, make this statement from the heart. Our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander tribes were the first sovereign nations of the Australian continent and its adjacent islands and possessed it under our own laws and customs. This our ancestors did, according to the reckoning of our culture from the creation, according to common law from time immemorial, and according to science more than 60 thousand years ago. The sovereignty is a spiritual notion, the ancestral tie between the land or mother nature and the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who were born therefrom, remain attached thereto and one day must return thither to be united with our ancestors. This link is the basis of the ownership of the soil or better of sovereignty. Sovereignty. 
it has never been ceded or extinguished and coexists with the sovereignty of the crown. How could it be otherwise that a people's possessed a land for 60 millennia and the sacred link disappears in merely the last 200 years? With substantive constitutional change and structural reform, we believe this ancient sovereignty can shine through as a fuller expression of Australia's nationhood. Proportionately, we are the most incarcerated people on the planet. We are not an innately criminal people. Our children are aliened from their families at unprecedented rates. This cannot be because we have no love for them. And our youth languish in detention in obscene numbers. They should be our hope for the future. These dimensions of our crisis tell plainly the structural nature of our problem. This is the torment of our powerlessness. We seek constitutional reforms to empower our people and take a rightful place in our own country. When we have power over our destiny, our children will flourish. They will walk in two worlds and their culture will be a gift to their country. We call for the establishment of a First Nations voice enshrined in the Constitution. Makarata is the culmination of our agenda, the coming together after a struggle. It captures our aspirations for a fair and truthful relationship with the people of Australia and a better future for our children based on justice and self-determination. We seek a Makarata Commission to supervise a process of treaty-making between governments and First Nations and truth-telling about our history. In 1967, we were counted. In 2017, we seek to be heard. We leave base camp and start our trek across this vast country. And we invite you to walk with us in a movement of the Australian people for a better future. Gas is a toxic fossil fuel, yet gas exploration by sonic explosion is planned for the Otway Basin. Seismic blasting kills plankton and deafens whales, disrupting their migration. This blasting is opposed by coastal communities from Geelong to Apollo Bay and Warrnambool who strive to protect the ocean ecosystems. Bring Whale Song into Nam City, Friday the 15th of September at Queen's Bridge near Flinders Street at 4.30pm and onto the State Library for 5.30pm. Rally for Whale Song Not Gas is hosted by Extinction Rebellion, a 3CR supporter. Hi, I'm Ahmed from Fridor Primary School and you're listening to Community Radio on 3CR. And you're with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast. We're going to move on now to uh, a little chat, a very short little snippet. It was a snippet that I got from um, Connor Flynn. He's a CPSU union organiser and uh, Save Preston Market spokesperson. He was down at the Brotherhood of St Lawrence Workers uh, rally that was being held on Thursday outside the uh, Brunswick offices of uh, BSL. 
and um, he uh, was I, – I quickly got him to give me a, a, a breakdown of what happened when the uh, Save Preston Markets uh, people and the community in general came to a, an event called Hands Around Preston Market that was held on Saturday the 12th of August and it was a, a very successful event. But uh, this is what Connor Flynn had to say about the whole deal. Completely different. But what happened with Preston Market? They got a really big turnout. Yes, so on the 12th of August, more than 2,000 people rallied in support of the Preston Market and applied pressure on the state government to follow through with their commitment to protect the site. Um, Salter Medic and owner Sam Tarasio up the striking BSL workers, by the way. Um, Sam Tarasio was on site on the day. Um, he spoke to media. He was on edge. He said only 500 people came when clearly there were 2,000. He got into a series of small altercations with members of the public as well. Um, one small child was chalking in support of the market. He called private security on them. Um, but, you know... The community rallied in support and purchased more chalk and the chalking continued and then later on Tarasio was accosted by two members of the community who challenged him on his obscene wealth and also his business associates, um, Medish, which is the second partner of Preston Market Developments. Um, one of their brothers was done for the contracted killing of a business rival and Sam Tarasio's lawyer has connections to Nicola Gobbo. Um, so it's very murky dealings, this world in which Tarasio involves in anyway. Tarasio was accosted, he elbowed a woman in the face and he sought refuge in an Italian bakery with um, hired goons. So if there was to be a pure pantomime of a billionaire, Sam Tarasio would be it. So the next steps for the campaign... We just need to keep applying political pressure on the state government to follow through because at the end of the day, Salter, they still own the site and they have the final say over what happens to it. They can decide to walk away, they can decide to build to the government's recommendations. So the clock is still ticking and the community's ready to go should they move. So the uh, community are not taking a step backwards? Absolutely not. Um, and it was a real shine, sign of community strength. On August 12, that thousands of people were prepared to rally in support of the Preston Market campaign. You know, having been involved in organising events for the last couple of years, we started off with the wider public not knowing what was happening to the community asset. Our first rallies were only maybe 50 to 100 people. You know, at Preston Town Hall at Kramer Street Oval, but to see thousands of people come out and say, we want the state government to publicly acquire the site. We want, we don't want a city built in the interest of, of profit. We want to see a city built in the interest of people was really inspiring. Um, yeah, thanks. No, you're right. Yeah, well, see, uh, you can hear that uh, the uh, demo outside uh, Brotherhood of St Lawrence was a, a happening affair and as I said if you uh, want to get a full report listen to the next edition of Stick Together and that was uh, Connor Flynn giving us a lowdown on what happened um, with uh, hands around Preston Market. It sounds like the uh, 
uh, millionaire is a little bit annoyed with uh, the, the those pesky people getting in the way of his uh, development. We're going to move on to another event that's coming up, which is uh, a... Uh, a variety of people at uh, Melbourne University, they've just spat the dummy and there's going to be, uh, some of them are taking seven-day uh, protected action next week. Uh, we spoke to, I spoke to David, that was a royal wee, huh? Um, David um, Gonzalez, he's the uh, branch president of the NTU on Melbourne University campus. Uh, this is what David had to say. So, David, can you tell my listeners uh, what's been going on for NTU members at Melbourne University? Yeah, for sure. Um, so it's been a year since we started bargaining with the university um, and nearly two years since our uh, last agreement with the university expired. Um, since then, uh, we've had many proposals, um, mostly go- coming from us and going to them and out of our six key um, claims that we call them, which are um, more secure work, uh, some responsibility taken by the university for workloads, restriction on um, restructures, that's how many times they can do a restructure over the life of the agreement, um, and flexible working arrangements, and um, a a better pay uh, package. Um, You know, only one um, of these have they come back with a proposal for, which is on um, parental leave. Um, so, um, you know, we've taken our first set of actions on um, May 3rd, where we had about a thousand people um, meet at the university uh, who went on a half day work stoppage, probably the largest um, demonstration in uh, many, many, many years um, at the University of Melbourne. And we took a full day action in um, June uh, during a university uh, executive meeting. And um, and now the, the university... Um, has delayed bargaining for another two weeks after we've given them an updated proposal. And um, uh, we have just said that we can't take it anymore. Um, so next week we will be taking um, unprecedented uh, action across the university. Yeah, we're talking about seven days stop work, right? Well, it's a it's a mixture of things. Um, we've, we're trying something very different than has ever been done before, probably at any um, uh, university in, in this country. Um, we will have a, um, on Monday, uh, starting at midday, we'll have a half day um, starting, uh, yeah, like I said, midday until 7.30 p.m., a half day uh, stop work for all members of the union at Melbourne Uni. And then what we um, we did is we allowed workplaces to um, vote workplace by workplace as to whether or not they were safe and ready to take um, longer action. And out of that, um, we ended up with the um, all the members um, in the arts faculty, the Melbourne Law School, uh, Scholarly Services, which is our library, the 757 Swanson Street Building, which houses many of our student services, and the VCA School of Art and the Faculty of Fine Arts and Music Stagecraft team. Uh, most of those have taken uh, five days. Well, they've all taken at least five days, and some have taken um, seven days of action. So they'll be stop work for up to a week. Yeah. Oh, that's quite extraordinary. And as you've pointed out, uh, what's been going on at Melbourne University is similar to what's been going on right across uh, the university sector in Australia. I mean, you could almost say what's going on for uh, workers at 
universities that they've created a kind of white collar sweatshop. Uh, you could say that. I, I'll only speak to Melbourne Uni because that's where um, I um, I stick to my knitting. But um, you know, I think that it is um, certainly a bellwether um, uh, uh, situation here at Melbourne, where we were the university that sort of took the lead with our um, casual uh, employees and casual members who started the um, casual network um, and agitated and organized to get those historic. Um, back pay deals of, uh, I think we're up to $40 million of um, back pay that they have received. And that you've seen that then spread to um, other universities um, across the country. What's been the reaction of the management so far? Silence. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> simple, simple as that. Um, uh, yeah, they, we've, um, the only uh, comment that I have seen is um, in a news article, and um, they have not said anything um, to us. Like I said, they um, delayed um, bargaining for two weeks, and they say that they're going to have a updated proposal, potentially including um, a couple of our key claims um, during the week of our strike. But it's worth noting that every time that they've said that they're going to give us a proposal, they have um, um, either missed their deadline or have produced no proposal at all. Now, the education, the higher education sector is an incredibly, and Melbourne University recently was, uh, you know, on the league table has shown itself to be high performing. I mean, it's not a, a very, it's not a small part of the economy, uh, the um higher education sector for Australia, it seems quite odd that there should be no reaction. We agree. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, um, to us, it's very simple. Um, there's one person that can change this. That's the Vice Chancellor, Duncan Maskell. Um, yes, he, goes, he, he is uh, quick to um, point out uh, being the, num the number one university in the country and what a great place this is. But, you know, the reality is that we have more than half of our um, workers who are on insecure contracts. Um, and, you know, there's a rot on the, underneath the, the shiny facade of um, this university of what it um, really means. And we've heard the vice chancellor repeatedly say that um, he wants to address these issues um, he, um, publicly in news articles. Um, his provost um, has said to the, um, the Senate um, that they want to solve these problems, but yet we have not received a single real proposal on um, how they're going to put people into secure work. You know, we, we, we have a very specific plan. We ask for 80% of all ongoing, um, all positions at the university be ongoing. And um, the reality is that we have a situation where, you know, ongoing regular business of the university is being um, done by people on casual contracts. And, you know, it, that's not to say that there isn't a place for casual work, um, um, you know, 80% um, we think is a reasonable target. And, um, you know, they, we would think that they would come to the table to um, to support us on that, but they haven't. I think that uh, people who don't work in the uh, uh, higher education sector would be quite confused about the idea that people who have spent a large amount of their lives and money to invest in their qualifications to be able to teach at a university level should be working on casual contracts, which, as we know, means that they can't take out a housing loan or a, go on holidays. Or It's all very strange. 
Yeah, I mean, it's heart-wrenching to hear the stories of people that are doing the same job for five, six, seven, eight, ten-plus years. You know, they're, they're doing the same work, you know, repeatedly, um, and um, and they're still on a casual contract. Yeah, like like you said, you know, we have we brought a group of um, casually employed uh, staff members to the bargaining table to tell their stories, and, you know, it was... Um, you know, people delaying having children or, or not, you know, deciding not to have children because they can't plan for the future, not being able to um, sign a car loan or a lease because the bank wouldn't accept it or the landlord wouldn't accept a casual um, contract. Um, you know, it just um, it, it, it just feels like at the, you know, the richest university. I know, like, this is something people say all the time, right, you know, rich employers, but this really is the richest university in the country. Um, you know, it, it if we can't do it, then then how can anyone else um, think that they can? And um, the reality is that they can afford it, and they're just choosing not to. Okay, so uh, next week is uh, what's going to happen, and uh, then we'll have to find out what uh, the management thinks that they can get away with after that, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, you know, we're like like I said, there's one person that can stop this, and that's the vice chancellor, and. Um, We'll be out in force on um, on that Monday afternoon, um, at, at, starting at twelve o'clock, and um, and then we'll be on the picket um, with those faculties that are off um, for the rest of that week. Would you like uh, people to come and support you? Uh, yeah, um, people are more than welcome to, to come. Um, if if I could um, mention our website, which is um, uh, unimelbebanow.com. Uh, that'll have all of the information around the different rallies and different workplaces that are out. And uh, each of those places will have their own schedules. And um, and then also on there, if people, um, you know, would like to support uh, striking workers, we have a strike fund that will be money going directly to um, the the uh, our most vulnerable members who um, will not be receiving any pay during the strike action. Thanks very much and good luck, David. Yeah, thank you so much. And that was David Gonzalez. He's the president of the uh, Melbourne University branch of the NTU, the National Tertiary Education Union. They're on strike next week. Vibe Union is bringing exciting, ongoing showcases of local talent across Melbourne. This creative collective provides a supportive platform to upcoming artists, hosting poetry open mic nights, intimate singer-songwriter evenings, and hip-hop showcases. Head along to one of their events for a welcoming night of creativity, or see how you can get involved at vibeunion.com.au. Vibe Union is a 3CR supporter. When Deputy Minister portrayed killing and being offensive, Pat Conkvemroy, said it was dangerous to have one great power controlling the Asia-Pacific region. And I thought, good on you, Pat, finally standing up to the US of the UN of the US of the world and telling it to stop warmongering with bases just everywhere, about 800 worldwide, making it strange that Pat made this encouraging comment while announcing spending trillions more on the U.S. of merchants of death industry. Very strange. A few days earlier, Pat told the Socialist Party choreographed get-together that those opposing spending $38 million a day for 30 years on nuclear train killers were 
appeasers, opponents of peace, supporters of Pig Eye and Bob Menzies, that spending trillions to kill people reflects the socialist anti-war history. The best way of dealing with the most uncertain strategic circumstances since 1945, the biggest military build-up since 1945, is investing in the defence of the nation. That will be cheaper in the long run and certainly a lot more beneficial to the public or true Blue Aussie public by promoting and pursuing peace and stability. Hand trillions to the merchants of death on heaps and heaps of toys for the boys that kill and slaughter and destroy is promoting, pursuing peace and stability. Just when we thought it would be cheaper in the long run not to spend any of it. Pat didn't specify who was engaged in the biggest military build-up, but his subsequent comments indicate he knew it was the US of. Someone should point out to Pat and big supremo Anthony Albinguzi and Pat's senior minister Richard Mulls, the bad guys, and the Minister for going overseas all the time and being a perfectly good little prefect, petty left wing, that George Orwell wasn't serious. It was satire. Another who took George seriously, Deputy Commander of the US Army Indo-Pacific Command, Lieutenant General Stephen Stinker, came here to warn us China's military is becoming dangerously arrogant and is fueling the risk of war with the US Army. He feared... China will seek to establish a military base in Solomon Islands or another Pacific nation as it seeks to dominate the region. And the incredible thing is, he said all that with a straight face. Well, at that talk fest, the evil unions, indeed the most evil of evil unions, construction and maritime, oh how caring, gentle construction, caring employers and maritime caring employers suffer under their lawless anarchy. At that talk fest, they called for evil union representatives on the Reserve Losses Bank board. Their evil intent exemplified by Secretary Jack Smith. The bank has been willfully out of touch with ordinary true blue Aussies, merrily hitting them with interest rate rises and simultaneously scolding them for modest pay rises after a decade of stagnant wage growth. They can't help themselves, can they? After all, caring employers have done for them. The outrageousness of the proposal was expressed on behalf of caring employers by the caring business class shadow economic guru, Angus Tailings, with a very sensible and balanced, this will be a test for Jim Chalmers' capital and Anthony Albinguzi's leadership. Will they bend to the pressure of their union paymasters or do the right thing and preserve the independence of our key economic institutions? Wise words, Angus, wise words, because Angus and the caring business class know that only the business class can bring independence to these matters with no bias whatever, acting only in the interests of the very workers who make their life a misery. Oh, sure, sure, once upon a time, a time of great economic reform by nuclear hawk himself and the world's greatest worst ex-treasurer, Paul, a time caring employers urged the Socialist Party to revisit. Then ACTU Secretary Little Billy Kiltem was on the board, but caring employers knew he represented those whom he represented. The unimaginable threat now is they might appoint an evil union representative who represents, wait for it, wait for it, represents workers, and who therefore cannot bring the independence the captains of industry bring. 
Oh, and thanks to Angus for revealing, for making um, us aware that the evil unions pay Jim Chalmers Capital and Anthony's salaries when, when we naively thought they were on the government payroll. Not that the caring business class is prepared to let the evil of unions and workers get between them and all that lovely, lovely workers' money sitting in super funds. Mentioned last week how filthy rich Anthony Yura Pratt has this plan for having all that workers' money invested in the caring business class particularly his bit of the caring business class. Why, at a conference looking at super this week, Anthony was photographed at breakfast between the aforementioned world's greatest worst ex-treasurer, Paul, and the also aforementioned incumbent, Jim Chalmers Capital. Although Anthony might not have been that happy with a number of contributions potentially diverting all that lovely, lovely workers' money away from him, including from Chalmers Capital, that super fund should spend trillions investing in the merchants of death industry. Big, big returns from slaughter. Workers fund the toys for the boys. The caring business class determines whom we must hate, or, well, more accurately, is told by the US of whom we must hate. And impressionable young workers who just love the toys for the boys are rounded up and set off to kill and be killed to defend the caring business class status quo. Without the caring business class risking any of their not-so-hard-earned, it's brilliant. As Jim put it, it's an opportunity for the merchants of death industry to be a bigger part of our thinking when it comes to the role of superannuation. Thinking. That's what he said. Thinking. And gee, all that spending, including the 38 mil a day for 30 years, is obviously not enough. But the sheer common sense of the proposal was franked by another former big economic guru, Joe Hackey, the workers, now a consultant and investor in the merchants of death industry, saging through a cloud of cigar smoke. It's time that Superfund step up to the plate and give everyday true blue Aussies the chance to invest in their own security. See? Ever thinking only of the country, only of all of us, of everyday Troublewazis, like his mates the filthiest rich of. And we can be certain Joe will come up with a plan that sees workers' money transferred into his pocket as they invest for him. Joe the leaner. But that super think fest, we'd never suggest idiot fest, was just one of the bigger cases this week when the socialists showed they're prepared to socialise with anyone if it's for the common good, like... Anthony and um, the team and State Supremo, the pejorative Dan and the team mingling with the cream of the corporate world at the 70th birthday bash of a big end of town law firm with the principal declaring, and we'd have to agree, the injustices Indigenous Troublewazis continue to suffer, how they have been scarred by dispossession, disrespect and racism, likening it to... Well, the plight of the Palestinian people, I hear you say. Dispossession, disrespect and racism. Well, no. Similar weapons that have been used against the Jewish people for millennia. Which is also true. But sadly, he didn't see the irony in his words. Two wrongs do not make a right. And then they all chopped off to a big night with the Business Profits Council, annual meeting combined with a farewell to retiring Supremo Jennifer Wester cut wages praising the role she has played in racking her mind over just how caring employers could solve low wages growth, a problem poor Jennifer never solved. 
but such occasions for the Prophets Council and the cream of the corporate world to point out to Anthony and Jim et al. the desperate need for tax reform, for those who don't pay tax, not paying tax, and for those who can't afford paying tax, paying even more through the GST, increase the GST, widen its scope and slash taxes for the filthy rich, and we'll all be better off, for it's all a matter of balance. What could be fairer than a progressive for the rich tax that is regressive and taxes the poorest of the poor who then benefit from the filthy rich not paying tax as the cornucopia trickles down those famous drops of yellow liquid? And after a week of socialising with the very people the socialists are committed to undermining, we can be sure they'll return to their roots this week and Anthony and Jim and Pat and Penny and Dan, well, all of them, will pop down to a homeless refuge and breakfast with the poorest of the poor. Where, of course, they'll feel so much more at home. They'll tell them they understand they're doing it tough, which would have been incongruous this week. Oh, and a little warning. If we're planning a flight somewhere might pay to check the passenger list before boarding. And if we notice someone on the list who has upset Russian supremo Vlad Poison, probably make a bit of sense to, to wait for another flight. Two years ago, the share price of Domino's How to Make a Killing Pizza hit $160, showing the value of a salt, sugar and fat killing. But sadly, Oh, so sadly, this week the share price tumbled to $53, going down like dominoes. Don't our hearts bleed for the poor shareholders? As Supremo Don Major Profit explained, inflation had forced up prices, but this year he hoped things would be better. Higher costs, wages, inflation. Don't suppose Don thought that just maybe, I know it's a long shot, but just maybe people are concerned about their health which is bad for Don's wealth, but good for big fossil polluter, AG hell for the planet's bottom line. Health, the benefits of privatisation, we were all promised. The state government, which says it so cares about climate change, if there is such a thing, is paying the polluter to keep polluting by keeping a beautiful, don't be afraid of it, coal-fired power plant open for years longer than even the company planned, just in case the planet lasts that long. Imagine if they didn't care about climate change, if there is. And finally, the government has presumably spent heaps on this report looking 40 years into the future, telling us, surprise, surprise, it's going to get hotter and we're going to live longer. I could have told them that for nothing. Well, we could have told them that for nothing, listener. Good morning. shall run there can be no power greater anywhere beneath the sun yet what force on earth is weaker than the feeble strength of one but the union makes us strong solidarity forever solidarity forever solidarity forever for the union makes us strong 
It is we who plowed the prairies, built the cities where they trade, dug the mines and built the workshops, endless miles of railroad laid. Now we stand outcast and starving mid the wonders we have made, but the union makes us strong. Solidarity forever, solidarity forever, solidarity forever, for the union makes us strong. They have taken untold millions that they never toiled to earn, but without our brain and muscle not a single wheel can turn. We can break their haughty power, gain our freedom when we learn that the union makes us strong. Solidarity forever, solidarity forever, solidarity forever, for the union makes us strong. In our hands is placed a power greater than their hoarded gold, greater than the might of atoms magnified a thousandfold. We can bring to birth a new world from the ashes of the old, for the union makes us strong. lovely rendition of the great song and uh, you're with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast on 3CR we're coming to the end of the program we were going to follow up with Don Sutherland but he is unfindable in that mad land of Tasmania so uh, I'm going to uh, oh hold on I'll play something else and perhaps we've uh, actually got him Uh, let's see what else That's Sinead O'Connor. But uh, we've got um, Don on the line. G'day, Don. Problems okay. problems <laughs> with telecommunication. Uh, yeah, I don't know what was going on there, but I'm really happy that we're talking. Yeah, and right. So you have to hurry up now because we've got hardly any time, and I know that it's profit season. It, yes, it's profit season. And listening to Solidarity Forever uh, gives us some real clues about under- how to understand what's going on with profits. The reason why it's so bloody important is because profit-taking is at the core of how our society works, whether we like it or not. And when you think about it, there's not much good reason to like about it. 
However, it does dominate. It is the uh, core of the how our society operates because every single thing, if you look around in your, whatever room you're in right now, every commodity that you see, has, you have acquired on the basis that it is sold for a profit. It is manufactured or uh, put together as a service for profit. So understanding profits is critical. And the annual reporting season, uh, uh, sorry, the uh, twice-a-year reporting season is coming to a close. And what happens there is that all of the private companies in Australia are reporting uh, reporting on their financial uh, results. Uh, And um, uh, uh, that does not include, of course, the privately owned companies who report in a different way. And that data is um, reported... Uh, in newspaper form, by, mainly by the Australian Financial Review, and um, uh, and will eventually be consolidated in some form. At the moment, it's very difficult to put together. But what we're seeing, we're seeing is massive profits, aren't we? Yes, we're seeing uh, massive profits. And the second major source of data confirms that. That is, that is what is produced uh, by the Australian Bureau of Statistics. So we've got uh, an overall trend. There are some exceptions, as you'd expect, but an overall trend to significant profit-taking, especially in the big corporations. It's not even all across all uh, all publicly traded companies, but especially the big corporations. And some of them are getting up to tricks with those those profits, like Qantas and a couple of others with fair buybacks and uh, so on. So... Yeah, profit-taking is a really big deal. Um, now, I noticed, and I was really delighted to hear you playing Solidarity Forever. And it's a good way because, you know, in song, in this particular song, which is, I think, generally accepted as the Australian Union Movement's anthem, you get lyrics which give us clues about how to understand this core dynamic of the society that we live in, which, of course, is a capitalist society. And uh, it's, it's particularly captured in uh, that phrase, uh, or the, almost every verse, actually, but uh, in particular, that phrase, that, those two lines which say, they have taken untold millions that they never toiled to earn, but without our brain and muscle, not a single wheel can turn. And you can muck around with that and turn it to some basic arithmetic to truly understand what's going on in our society around this core dynamic of profit-taking. The first bit, we've got the volume of profits. They're rising. If you divide the volume of profit by wages, because there's no profit without wages. In other words, that's what those two lines and some other lines in that song tell us, that there isn't... They're two sides of the same coin. Divide profit by wages and you get the rate of exploitation. Now, then the second... And, and what's more, the Australian Bureau of Statistics data confirms that the rate of exploitation in Australia is overwhelmingly rising. So we have a high rate of exploitation. And that there is no sign of that trend being reversed. There might be periods where it's slowed, but not, there is no sign of it being reversed. Um, the second bit of arithmetic is what the hell do the bosses do with their profits? (laughs) Do they invest productively? And you can find that out by looking at 
new productive investment, data that can be found in annual reports, but also is in the Australian Bureau of Statistics. And that shows that in Australia, the rate of productive investment by private uh, by privately owned companies, whether on the stock exchange or privately privately, is declining. <laughs> all of those all of those bosses who wrap themselves in the nationalism, the patriotism, if you like, of the Australian flag, they're not spending in the Australian context in productive investment. It's falling. And that is a really serious matter when it comes to thinking about the new investment that is required, because uh, required to deal with climate change. The uh, And also it says, well, how are we going to drive new investment in climate change well, the fundamental idea that's being pushed is it should be dominated by public subsidies with no public ownership to go with it. No, oh, what? The same song? It's handouts. It's handouts to those who are treasonous when it comes to what might be their moral responsibility to invest productively in climate change reversal. The third bit of arithmetic is the killer, in my view, and that is that every single employer is interested not just in their volume of profit, but their profit relative to the investment they put in. And the arithmetic there is there's two options, basically, is the total profit divided by the sum of all of their accumulated fixed assets plus wages. And you can leave the wages out to get the same result. And what it shows, the most recent data I have seen, which comes from uh, an organisation that produces uh, world tables on uh, economic performance, including profitability, shows that the rate of profit in Australia has fallen. So that is a contradiction, isn't it? Why does it occur? Why does it occur? Well, you go back to the total profits. Total profits represent the source for the accumulation of the ownership of fixed assets in buildings. Corporations own buildings, they own machinery, they own equipment. That grows and grows and grows. And therefore, if it's growing and wages are being depressed, uh, wages are saying the same, at some point there's downward pressure on the rate of profit. And that's the trend in Australia probably at the moment. Uh, the way in which the Australian Bureau of Statistics produced that data make it tricky to work out. But uh, my puny efforts indicate that probably uh, the Australian Bureau of Statistics data confirms what comes from these pen world tables. So we have these this basic arithmetic. The final one is that when you go to the Treasurer and his intergenerational report, and then with most of the public pundits, the, pro- the, the solution is to increase labour productivity, to get more work at a higher value out of fewer workers working at a faster rate, some oh, sort of compromise. But it's once again the arithmetic. Yeah. Productivity. Productivity is essentially wages plus profits divided by per person or per working hour. And if you've got an increase in the rate of exploitation, that means that their version, the dominant 
ideological version of productivity is it's all about trying to increase the amount of profit taken per working hour. Um, so that's what's going on at the moment. You know, you know, Don. What basically they're completely untrustworthy. The uh, the leaders, the, the people with the motoring caps on, are uh, people who are just hide away and think that it'll all be okay because these people know what they're doing. Uh, it's not. It's not uh, going to work, is it? Well, I, I think the people who control and manage the, manage the system on the whole do know what they're doing. What's actually happened, all these contradictions, uh, what's happening there is um, the logic of the system playing itself out. And the real problem is those is the presentation of this idea that, sure, there are the five big crises, right, where, you know, there is rising inequality and we, if we're, we are not on the edge of a recession there is certainly likely to be a, a bit of a slump. The recovery from that will be slow. So you get this interaction. It, 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 you can't talk now about a, a society in which there is an economy without the ecology. Climate change means and defines the, the economy these days. There is no sign that little bits of patchwork to solve the problem of the ecology that is climate change interacting with what we have traditionally understood as the economy. The patchwork is not going to fix it. We are told that minor reforms are what's realistic. We must be pragmatic. In fact, those who define minor reforms, gradual reforms, uh, like people, people like Chalmers and his supporters in the Labor Party, they are being idealistic. They are the ones who are being pie in the sky because they have this concept in their heads and they're trying to teach us to accept it. And the overall, most of the population does, is that it's, prag it's pragmatic and realistic. It is not. It is idealistic. It's wishful thinking that this is going to solve because every, every reform begets a new element of the crisis. So you fix up one little thing for a little while there, but that creates a new problem. But that, that, leads, us, that leads us to his backup plan, which is everything is going to be about war and manufacturing of war uh, objects within the Australian economy. Well, I'm not sure that's everything, but it's, a bit, it's certainly very big. And the, the notion... When it comes to warmongering, this government, regrettably, tragically... Tragically. ...is spitting in the face of people like Tom Uren and uh, who, you know, salutary leaders of the Labor Party at one stage by embracing public spending on warmongering because their major priorities are offensive weapons. I know, it's just terrible. They, they are not, they're not about defence at all. They're offensive weapons. And what I've seen uh, in the data is that 15,000 new jobs for about $800 billion. I mean, once upon a time, one of the champions of warmongering in this Labor government, Pat Conroy, was working as a research officer 
started his career in the movement, in the labour movement, as a research officer at the AMWU, and certainly helped was associated with research that showed the ratio of jobs for investment in the mining industry. And it was in the, it was in the ballpark of 15,000 jobs for several hundred billion, probably less than that, actually. This is puny. 15,000 defence jobs for $800 billion worth of investment in attack weapons, not defensive at all. It's pathetic, so, isn't it? It's really pathetic. Uh, it is really quite outrageous and is a blot on some of the other um, positive things that this government is trying to do, as modest as they are. Yeah, I know. It's just terrible. The, uh, so we end with this. We've jumped from some music to tell us a little bit about how this society works and how, how, how we should try to understand it as activists in the working class, as we need to be. We've moved from music to a bit of arithmetic, to a bit of data, and we finish off by noting that those who dress them, themselves in the clothes of pragmatism are in fact, in fact, in fact, wishful thinkers. We must, we are the realists, because we understand the dynamic of profit taking at the core of this system begets every single further problem and crisis and uh, and slump and so on. So, what's the answer? Uh, the un- the answer must be a new momentum for an ecological feminist and anti-racist socialism. That We must find the momentum for that. And only, I think only the big failure here, in my view, is that the left, to the left of the Labor Party and the Greens, including those who are members of those two parties but see themselves as to the left of that, are not getting their act together to build a strategy for that momentum. And that's the big project we face over the next two or three years. Oh, well, there you go. That's a great way to finish. Good on you, Don. Thanks for talking to us this morning. I hope we can keep talking about that. And, uh, um, and you know, the, I am going to try and produce some data for people for my blog site about um, about the profit story in Australia. Uh, hopefully, hopefully get to that research and the rate of profit available for consideration in the next couple of weeks. Thanks, Matey. All the best, Annie, and all the best to all of your listeners. Dare to struggle. Dare to win. Yep, that's it. That's the end of Solidarity Breakfast this morning. I'm glad the uh, technical problems resolved themselves because that was a mighty conversation. Uh, This week we uh, listened to a chat that I had with uh, author Craig Horn. The Line of Blood, The Truth of Alfred Howard. We uh, heard uh, the re- a reading of um, the uh, A Voice to Parliament, the uh, Uluru Statement by Rachel Boss. She's a Kona woman and ACTU First Nations uh, educator and officer. Uh, she uh, is um, part of the Union for Yes, a Voice to Parliament campaign. She was at uh, RAW, the uh, 
uh, Women's Rights at Work Conference, which was held on Friday at uh, the Trades Hall in Victoria here. Uh, we went on to hear of what happened at uh, the Save Preston Market rally on Saturday the 12th uh, with their successful Hands Around Market event. We talked to David Gonzalez, branch president of the NTEU, the National Tertiary Education Union, uh, as they go into a week of protected action. Uh, uh, this is the week that was, and then our chat with Don Sutherland. We uh, started uh, that sequence with uh, Solidarity Forever because that's exactly what uh, Don wanted us to do. And uh, we're going to go out with what he wanted us to reflect on, which is Joe Glacier uh, singing Pie in the Sky. Uh, it's really nice to go back and listen to some of these uh, great songs from these era that uh, lay it out. This is a, wo- a, rob- a wobbly song, actually. Um, coming up next is uh, Asia Pacific Currents. Long-haired preachers come out every night Try to tell you what's wrong and what's right But when asked about something to eat They will answer in voices so sweet You will eat by and by In that glorious land in the sky Work and pray Live on hay You get pie in the sky when you die That's a lie And the starvation army they play They sing and they clap and they pray Till they get all your coin on the drum Then they'll tell you when you're on the bum You will eat, by and by In that glorious land in the sky Work and pray, live on hay You get pie in the sky when you die, that's a lie Holy rollers and jumpers come out They holler, they jump and they shout Give your money to Jesus, they say He will cure all diseases today You will eat by and by In that glorious land in the sky Work and pray, live on hay You get pie in the sky when you die, that's a lie Working men of all countries unite Together for freedom we'll fight When the world and its wealth we have gained To the grafters we'll sing this refrain You will eat by and by When you learned how to cook and to fry Chop some wood, it'll do you good You'll eat in the sweet by and by That's no lie Hello, this is Archie Roach, and you're listening to 
Good music on 855 AM on 3CR. 3CR is about community and we welcome your participation at the station. 3CR is open to a wide diversity of volunteers and is a great way to connect with Melbourne's activist community. Have you ever thought about volunteering, doing a reception shift, getting a program on air, training in radio skills or contributing to one of the station's committees? There are many ways to... You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.